Well, as Ken said, we'll be starting the Gospel of John. I'll give you a couple weeks head start on me, so you can start reading it. And uh, we'll start that at the end of August. <clears throat> and so we have a couple weeks here. And just so you know, uh, Kainoa will be preaching here on the 20th of August. So be sure you be praying for him and uh, the message that, he's, uh, that God has put on his heart to share with us on Sunday. He's taught several times on Wednesday nights, and it's always been a blessing. <clears throat> um, this week we're finishing up our, our Wednesday night uh, series on you know, what we believe. Last week we talked a little bit about baptism. And so I pray you'll make time to come out Wednesday night as well. Well, for the next two weeks, um, I'm going to be preaching on a subject, uh, calling it Take Back the Rainbow. (laughs) And, uh, you know, this is something that a lot of churches are organizing together and doing. Um, The one thing that that I I realized... uh, as you read the Word of God, that it is the truth, amen, and that we can't compromise on certain issues because if we do, um, if they want an inch, they'll take a mile. And so, unfortunately, I believe that Christians, born-again Christians even, as well as the church is in America, have been silenced by the threat of cancellation, by the threat of... Uh, you know, this society and what they, they think of. And we have, to, we have to come to grips with that at some point because we're not called to silence as believers. It's not okay to just stay quiet while evil uh, rallies all around us. Uh, evil is manifested. We see this throughout Scripture. We see it in our society, especially today. Evil is manifested through chaos. Would you agree? Um, it's the opposite of good. It's disorder. It's, it's mixing everything up. And one of the, the primary, really, manifestations of evil, and I'm not talking about evil people here, I'm talking about the fact that we live in a spiritual universe surrounded by spiritual forces on every side, some good, some not so good, some downright evil. But we're living in a, in a spiritual reality. The spirit world is all around us. And there's light and there's darkness. And darkness is destructive. It is. It has an agenda. It's, it's not passive. It's intelligent. And one of the primary manifestations of this darkness, which is also evil, is chaos. And we see it in our society. Just watch the news, or don't. <laughs> because chaos, what does it do? It brings destruction. You see this when people riot. You see it when you have any kind of disorder in society. Destruction follows. And so one of the most, I would say, hideous implications and really outcomes of the LGBTQ movement that is sweeping across the entire world today at lightning speed, you could say, with the weight of a tidal wave, and it's bringing with it complete and utter chaos. It's bringing disorder to our planet. And especially, it's bringing confusion and disorder to our children. Where there is order, there is peace. And there is peace because of God's presence. And where there is confusion, where there is chaos, there is destruction. Now, I'm not bringing this message because I hate anybody. (laughs) I'm not bringing this message um, because I want you to hate someone. That's not true. Uh, I'm speaking against a destructive evil in our society. And just because I disagree with this whole agenda of the alphabet community, the LGBTQ plus whatever they call themselves nowadays, mindset does not mean that I hate them, nor should we hate them. I'm, and you're, allowed to disagree 
without being a hateful person. This is very important that we hear this. Unfortunately, this evil that has swept over the world has really silenced mankind that, that people are so afraid to disagree with the powers of darkness, people are afraid to speak their own voice because as soon as you speak your voice against this illegitimate LGBTQ agenda in our society, as soon as you speak out against this, you are labeled as what? A hater. You're a hater. You're an outcast. And what do they do? They silence you. They cancel you. Well, as we look to the Word of God and we look at the beginning of the Word of God, all the way back in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the Bible is pretty clear. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says this, the earth was formless and void. It was formless and void. So we find here at the very beginning, as as God opens our eyes to see what his creation came from, that the very beginning, before God said, let there be light, what was there? There was darkness and there was chaos. There was darkness and there was chaos. And then when God said, let there be light, that's when order in our world began to appear. And one of the orders that God put into effect as he created us, one of the orders that he put out there as his plan and his purpose on the planet was it says that he created us in his own image. He created us. We didn't roll out of the primordial soup up onto the the beach and decide to spring some lungs because we couldn't, you know, Evolution is a lie, an utter lie, because God's word is true. You can't have both be true. But when you think of it logically, evolution brings its own demise. (laughs) So we're not even going to focus on that. But when he created us, the Bible says that God created us in his own image. And it says this, he made them male and female, he created them. So God created the planet. He put humanity on the planet as pretty much the, the, the top of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, you could say. And humankind, we were created in his own image. And if you think about it, you can feel as a result, because God feels. You experience consciousness. You're not just some robot. You can love. You can look at something and appreciate its beauty. All of us have a will to choose. All these things are written within us. They're in our very soul. Why? Because we're created in what? In God's image. We're created in God's image. And when God created us, he said to the male and the female whom he created, there wasn't anything in between the male and the female. There was just a male and a female. You understand that? And it kind of makes sense. It makes perfect sense, actually. And when we come to the reality and we begin to admit that we didn't come from nothing, we didn't evolve from nothing, as the scientists love to say, which is just, it's it's just ridiculous. But that we were created by a creator who had an intelligent design in mind when he created us. He just didn't, you know, throw this together one day. He, He, you know, God was able to pull all this together for a purpose and a plan. He had design in our creation. And so if we'll acknowledge that there is a God, and that it's not some impersonal force somewhere out there floating around, but it's a God who created us, and matter of fact, he created everything that exists around us, and he did so with a purpose. It wasn't just a, you know, "Ah, I'm bored this afternoon, I think I'll take six days and create that. No! He had a purpose in creating the world. He had a purpose in creating the vegetation and the animals and mankind. 
And if we're willing to acknowledge that, that he created us as human beings, and he created us as either male or female, then what's going to happen is we're going to have to readdress our passivity and our really our buy-in to this whole LGBTQ agenda. Which, by the way, says that we don't have to be a male. Even though we are physically, we don't have to be a male. And we don't have to be female. As a matter of fact, we can be anything in between. Anywhere on the spectrum. That's where we get the LGBTQ plus rainbow flag. That's what that stands for. And the point is, is their point is that you can be anywhere on this spectrum of this beautiful, diverse rainbow. And it's all good. It's all good. Just be whatever you want to be. You don't have to be 100% male. You don't have to be 100% female. As a matter of fact, if you're 100% male, you can choose to be 100% female if you want. And if you're female, you can choose to be a male. Or you can just choose to be something in between that. I mean, that's really where the whole transgender movement comes, right? That's what it's all about. And it's wreaking destruction in people's lives all around us. It's, it's wreaking havoc. It's reaching chaos and confusion. And unfortunately, our children, our young people, the ones who are being raised in this culture, are the ones that are bearing the brunt of it. There was a segment of 60 Minutes where they focused on transgenderism in Australia. And there's a movement there in Australia where parents, when they find out that they're pregnant and they're having a child, a lot of times, you know, people want to know, well, what, is it a boy or a girl, you know, so people can buy the right stuff and, you know, take everything back, right? Kai and Kano and Mariana are going through all this right now, right? Well, they know, they're having a girl, okay? Well, in Australia, they say, well, no, um, you know, we're not going to have a reveal party. We're not going to you know, want to know if it's a boy or a girl. And they don't have a reveal party to share the gender of their child that's still in the womb with their family and friends. Matter of fact, they don't even label their child at birth a male or a female. They call their child the baby. It's not a male or a female, it's just the baby. And the mindset is simply this. And they're thinking, they think, you know what? These parents are thinking, well, we're not going to tell our child whether they're male or female based on their biological status, based on their genitalia. Instead, we're going to let them explore. And rather than label them a boy or a girl, we're going to let them explore and choose their own identity. Doesn't that sound nice? This is poison. This is insanity. And the world is at a place really where it's, I mean, probably most of us would agree, it's lost its mind. What's up is down, and what's down is up. What's good is bad, and what's bad is good. It's crazy, it's nonsense. And it's causing, what, the breakdown of our society as we know it. And the result of this will be what? Will be confusion in people's lives and destruction. And that's just the beginning. When this breaks down, all types of chaos and evil are going to follow. If we let our children be raised by our schools and by our politicians and by social influencers on TikTok or media companies or even tech companies who are all buying into this agenda, the alphabet community agenda, they're all buying into it. If we let our children's mind be programmed by this, this is poison. Only pain Sorrow and heartache are going to follow. 
And as a matter of fact, you see some of this now with some of these transgender people who at a young age chose to, you know, maybe they were a girl, they wanted to be a boy, so they started to take these hormones and do all this stuff, and now they're coming back and they're saying, this was a big mistake. I wish my parents would have said, don't do this. And sometimes the parents didn't even know they were doing it. I mean, this is sick stuff. And we, I think, that know the difference, we know the difference between right and wrong, and we recognize this whole gender fluidity movement as total chaos, as destruction. As if we see that, and, and, and in us that have common sense, if we do not stand up and we do not oppose this, we're going to be really regretting it one day. There's going to be a time where sorrows and hurts will be such that no other generation of human beings has ever experienced before. This is how important this is. So I I believe as a church, as individual Christians, as people who believe in the authority of the word of God, we need to stand up. And when the enemy's voice gets loud, guess what? Our voice needs to get louder. We don't need to listen to their, oh, no, you just be quiet. Don't raise any chaos. Don't don't cause any waves. Just go along with it. No, 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 no. Just because, you know, we have a love for people, which the church should have a love for people, amen? Just because we have a love for people, just because you have a love for somebody, you know, maybe, maybe you have somebody in your family. Maybe you know somebody who's caught up in this homo, homosexual agenda, this homosexual relationship. Maybe you have somebody that's this pro-LGBTQ movement mindset. And just because you love those people with the love of Christ, it doesn't mean that just because you love them, you have to agree with them. And you have to approve them, and you have to affirm their unrighteous behavior. I don't know if you remember, but back in 2016, it was the Christmas season, and Answers in Genesis lit up its full-scale replica of Noah's Ark, and they lit it up with a rainbow. Well, you would think that's kind of an innocent thing to do. After all, it is an ark. We're going to learn a little bit about the rainbow today and uh, next week. But it seemingly created a storm of protest. A storm of protest of people pushing the LGBTQ agenda. These homosexuals were incensed that a conservative Christian group, such as uh, this Answers in Genesis, would steal the emblem of the rainbow. How dare they take our logo? After all, they had adopted the rainbow as their symbol and logo as far back as 1978. The ark's only been there a couple years there. I mean, in reality, beloved, let's just be honest. Who hijacked the rainbow? Wasn't wasn't the Christian community, right? It was the LGBTQ agenda. They hijacked the rainbow just like they hijacked Words and definitions of words. Words like marriage. Words like gay. They mean something totally different today. I remember when it was raining out here a lot. <laughs> and uh, one of my brothers back east said, Hey, how you holding up with all the flooding? You know, he was looking at the news and cars were flowing down El Camino and everything. And I just wrote back to him very innocently on a text. I said, Remember the rainbow. And I thought, wait a minute, he's from Pennsylvania. I'm from California. What's he going to think? I immediately went into defense mode. I got to find a verse, you know. That's sad. That is sad. That's where our minds have gone. Gay activists were the real thieves here. They undermined, they suppressed the sign of God's continual covenant with mankind. And just to give you a little history lesson on all this, this this rainbow flag was really designed by an artist named Gilbert Baker at the request of San Francisco um, 
the city supervisor and openly gay elected first one official in the history of California, Harvey Milk, who, by the way, if you ever fly anywhere internationally and you go through San Francisco airport, he is everywhere as a hero. The original Rainbow made its debut in San Francisco in the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade on June 25, 1978. And after the assassination, unfortunately, of Harvey Milk in November 1978, the demand for this flag greatly increased. Well, the artist dropped the hot pink stripe from the flag because he couldn't find the color. It wasn't readily available. So he had to change it. And in 1979, he modified it again to become a six-stripe rainbow flag that's still used to today. But as I was looking online, in addition to that, there's many renditions of this flag, many. I mean, some of them are very complicated. Um, in, in, In June 2017, under the leadership of Amber Hikes, Philadelphia Office of the LGBT Affairs, um, she unveiled a, a new flag called More Colors, More Pride. And the rainbow flag is a symbol of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer pride commonly used by this movement all around the world. And the colors, they say, reflect diversity of the community in addition to the spectrum of human sexuality and gender. And over the years, if you go online, you can see this. This flag has been updated almost weekly because they're always coming out with a new group. And, and so there's 12-plus there's versions of this flag up there now. Well, Messianic rabbi Kurt Schneider, he, he, he started an organization called Taking Back the Rainbow. Taking Back the Rainbow. And I want to quote him. And he has resources on, online, and I used a lot of his resources for these messages. But he, he's quoted as saying this, Enough is enough. There has not been a consolidated movement within the body of Christ to stand up and to oppose unrighteousness as it relates to the LGBT agenda and the hijacking of the rainbow, the sacred symbol of the rainbow that was put in the sky all the way back in the very beginning in the book of Genesis, declaring that God had made an everlasting covenant with humanity. But now God's people are afraid to be associated with the rainbow, end quote. See, God made the rainbow. They didn't invent this rainbow. God made the rainbow, and what is it? It's a manifestation of his glory and his beauty. That's what it should be assigned to you when you see it in the sky. Rainbows and color are very much a a visible manifestation of the glory of God. Can, Can you imagine living in a black and white world just where everything is gray? How boring that would be? I mean, just look around. I mean, some of you have beautiful dresses on, different colored things. I mean, all that would just be gone. See, color is, is one of, of God's incredible blessings in our lives. Some of us don't see the full extent because we're colorblind. So we, we see color, but we don't see the, the full eye-popping color that everybody else sees. It doesn't mean you're, you see things in black and white. It just seems you have issues with certain shades of colors. But in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 28, the prophet writes this. And I thought this was interesting. Ezekiel 1, 28. He says, like the appearance of the the bow, it says, or the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So, listen, was the appearance of the brightness all around. This is Ezekiel seeing an image of God. And he says, wow, this this is amazing. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. See, God owns the rainbow. It says he was like the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds. It's a manifestation of his glory and his beauty. Now, I want to take a little time today to talk about the rainbow. But before we get to our biblical text, and we're not going to get through the whole outline today. We'll finish it up next week uh, when we have communion. But 
the first thing we should state is, is basically when you look at a rainbow, you see different colors, but all those colors are contained in what we know as white light. White light. What happens is, as the light from the sun hits these water droplets in the sky, the water droplets in the rain act as a, a prism that divides this white light into seven specific colors, the colors of the rainbow. They act as prisms. And they divide this white light that's in the sky into the rainbow spectrum. Now, all those colors are in white light. And when you think of the light of of God's glory, what do you think of? You think of a white light. Right? Just something's just startling. And it gives us a sense of, of how beautiful God is. I mean, the, the world would be a boring place without color. And so the rainbow and colors are a gift from God to us. He's the one that made it. It's interesting also that there are seven colors in the rainbow. Um, John MacArthur points out. Roy G. Biv, right? Those are the colors of the the rainbow. If you remember that name, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Seven colors in the rainbow. And now if you think about that, the number seven, we're not big into numerology, but the number seven does have some significance in scripture. It is mentioned quite a bit. There's seven colors in the rainbow. There's seven days in the creation cycle. What's interesting, the seven colors in the rainbow, of those seven colors, three of them are primary, what they call primary colors. They are red, yellow, and blue. Now again, this this number three has significance in Scripture. Both three and seven give the idea of completeness. And so the rainbow comes from white light. It's broken up into this prison of these different colors caused by the different wavelengths and and the way the, the, the light is refracted through this. Three of them are primary. And once again, you have seven colors. You have seven days in creation. Now, think about it. Noah, back in Genesis, as he was getting ready to board the ark before the flood, he never saw rain. He just said, I'm just going to be obedient and build this boat. I don't know what it's for, but this is what the Lord says to do, so I'm going to do it. He was instructed to bring aboard seven sets of every clean type of animal. Number seven, once again. In the holy temple, in the tabernacle, the Lord instructed that there was to be a menorah. Some of you have menorahs in your home. And what, what on, what's on a menorah? Seven candlesticks. In the book of Revelation, before the throne of the Lord, in Revelation 1, 4, there are, are seven spirits of God. Once again, the number seven. Remember, seven colors in the rainbow. And then throughout the the book of Revelation, the number seven is used over and over and over again. There's seven churches, right? Um, Seven seals, seven bulls, seven trumpets. The Feast of Tabernacle, that great feast which every nation in the world will participate during the millennial period, is made up of seven days. So we, we see this throughout Scripture. It's all through God's creation. And when you say there's three primary colors, also, this is is also, we have to consider this fact. We find in the temple, which was patterned after the tabernacle, what are there? There there are three different sections within within the, the tabernacle, within the temple. There's the outer court, there's the holy place, and then there's what? The holy of holies. Three, three. When you think of the patriarchs of the Hebrew Bible, how many are there? There's three. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we baptize someone, we baptized Laura a couple weeks ago. What do we say? We baptize you 
my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize in the three names of God. So I find it exciting. All these numbers are incorporated in the, the rainbow. Seven colors, with three of them being primary. Now, with that being said, turn over to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And let's look at verse 8. And we'll read down uh, through verse 17. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you that never again, here it is, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then in verse 13, he says what this sign will be. He says, I have set my bow. It doesn't say rainbow, but that's really what it means. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again, here it is again, become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The rainbow covenant, God's rainbow covenant. It's one of the most extraordinary, beautiful wonders that we see in all creation. There's just something about a rainbow. I have a picture of the church. Where I was across the street and I saw a rainbow. I want to get a picture with a steeple and, you know, with the rainbow behind it. It looked kind of cool. If you're driving down the road and you see a beautiful rainbow, what do you want to do? You want to stop and take a picture. I mean, people are intrigued with the rainbow. Little children, when you give them their chalk and they go out in front of your house and they scribble all over the sidewalk, what do they make? They make rainbows. They don't have to be told to make rainbows. They make rainbows. Rainbows have fascinated people throughout the ages. There are a lot of different things you can consider about rainbows. You can look it up on your own and find a lot of information on it. But let's just give you a simple overview of what a rainbow is. It's basically a bent or curved line in the sky composed, consisting of seven colors, red, orange, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And for the rainbow to be visible, the sun has to be behind, this is interesting, the observer who is in fact facing the rainbow. doesn't work if the sun's in front of you. Since only one color of light is observed from each raindrop, because the sun hits different raindrops at different angles, since one color of light then is observed from every raindrop, the incredible number of raindrops is required to produce a magnificent spectrum in the sky that we know as the rainbow. What's interesting is the law of physics and science make it impossible to walk under a rainbow. You're not going to be able to walk under a rainbow. won't be able to see it. Even Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, somewhere over the rainbow, there's a land where dreams really do come true, right? We hear this kind of mentality when it comes to 
rainbows. Unfortunately, the homosexual community has adopted the rainbow as a sign of the beauty and the diversity of their own perversion. They've taken, once again, something that God has made, good thing, and they perverted it. Well, I want to look at the biblical meaning of the rainbow. What is the meaning of the rainbow? What is its significance? Does it have any meaning? More than just a sign for the LGBTQ community. According to the Bible, um, you know, when you look at the sun, there's no message in the sun for us. S-U-N, in the sky. There's no message in the moon. You don't look in the Bible and say, oh, if, if the moon is this, then you'll see this. No. There's no message in the stars. According to Genesis 1.14, there are signs. There's seasons and there's days. That's why God gave us a moon and a, and a sun and, and stars to, to, to allow us to divide the seasons into days and years and all that. These are calendar signs. The moon moves, and distance from the sun changes, and the tilt of the earth, all this stuff is all created by God. They provide a simple, consistent point of reference for us when it comes to our calendar. Today, we have scientists talking about constellations. And a lot of times, constellations relate to what? Horoscopes, right? A lot of people are into that. Hey, are you a Gemini? Are you an Aries? Whatever you are. Let me just tell you, the constellations have nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing, absolutely nothing. They are pagan in nature from people who used to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. They're inventions of these astrological pagan wishes. And guess what? They're not really there. They're not there. These are something that people invented. They're just stars that are up there. There are no constellations identified with Greek deities. Think about it. Would a, would a God who says, I am the only God, there's no other God besides me, put pagan deities in the sky for us to worship? No. He wouldn't do that. God would never put paganism in the sky. And connecting all those dots, the way they're connected to great constellation, I, I believe it, it's really from the hand of Satan. It's a distraction for people. And people bought into it, the whole New Age thing, everything. It's just crazy. But this is a pagan invention contrived by man at his worst. It has absolutely no biblical meaning whatsoever. So stop reading your horoscope. It means nothing whatsoever. And this has crept into the church. Uh, Dr. James Kennedy, many of us know him and his teachings. He actually wrote a book dealing with the book of the gospel and the stars. And uh, he says in that little book that the heavens, the heavens, uh, the Bible is God's little book, but the heavens are God's big book. Now, I don't know what he means by that, but that's dangerous theology, <laughs> You're getting a little too close to the line there. There's only one thing that you will see in the sky that's a sign from God. Only one thing. The only thing that God has placed in the sky, the Bible says, that will give a spiritual message. Guess what? It's the rainbow. That's the only thing. And so when we read this text, we saw this is what God did. And this is a very important message from God to us. If you look through that text, verses 18, 8 to 17 of, of Genesis 9, you can go through there and you can break it up into basically three speeches from God. And each one starts with God said. God said. The first one is in verse 8 there, where he says, Then God said. And then you jump down to uh, verse 12, and God said. And then he wraps it up in verse 17, and God said. Three speeches from God to Noah and his family. His wife, his three sons, their wives. 
And this is, this is God's message to all of humanity, really, because that's all the humanity that was left over, right? You remember what happened before the flood. Man did what was right, evil in his own mind continually, and God wiped it all out. But he gave grace to Noah and his family. And he told him, hey, build this ark because I'm going to send a flood. And it's rain, torrential rain, and it's going to kill everything on the face of the earth. And you're to go into this boat you're going to build, and I will keep you safe. And that's what God did. And so these are three speeches from God to Noah and his family, but really to all of humanity, because that's all of humanity that was left after the entire population of the earth was wiped out. These eight people. So in the first seven verses of Genesis 9, you know, the flood is over. Noah's coming out of the ark. He's coming into this, this new world. And, and we always see it in such a way. It's like, oh, this is so beautiful. Stop and think about it. Everything died. Now, I believe God supernaturally kept Noah and his family in the ark a little while longer even than they needed to be because of the fact that it gave some time for some regrowth to start. But you still had rotting flesh everywhere, dead carcasses, dead people everywhere. I mean, think about it. This was not a, a, a pretty picture. And so in verses 1 to 7, Noah and his family were told what to do. They were to, they were to reproduce, they were to rule, and they were to eat. And they were to execute anyone who killed someone else. That's the, the things that God told them to do in the verse seven, verse 7 verses of Genesis 9. And now in verses 8 to 17, he tells Noah and his family, here's what you're to do. And then in verses 8 to 17, God says, now here's what I'm going to do. So he tells them what they're to do, and then he says, here's what I'm going to do. He gives this exhortation, you could say, to Noah, and it really becomes the promise from God. And the main point of of what you read here is that God is going to make a promise. This is what I'm going to do, God says. I will make, I am going to make you a covenant Barith in the Hebrew, a covenant. What is that? It's a promise that God makes to man. And this is important because it establishes that who is making this covenant? It's not Noah. It's God. God is making the covenant. God is the covenant maker as part of his personal commitment to man. He's the the promiser who makes covenants. And from now on, throughout the rest of Scripture, throughout the entire body, Bible, you see that God is known as a covenant-making God. And by the way, he's faithful to keep his covenants. And so here you have this first covenant, the first covenant that God makes. He makes it with Noah's family, which constitutes all of humanity, all that's left. And so really... It's a covenant or a promise that he gives to all mankind. And even beyond that, the text seems to indicate he even makes these promises to the animals. It's not just Noah and his family, but all of the, the creatures on the earth. And so this promise is a very simple one. The promise of this covenant with Noah and all of creation is, you know what, I'm never ever going to do this again. I'm never, ever going to wipe everything out. I'm never, ever going to drown the world with a universal flood like I just did. I'm never going to destroy the entire planet with water like this. But it is a covenant. It needs to be understood. It's like a legal document. It's like a contract. It's well arranged. It has a purpose. This word covenant here, it's used seven times, interestingly enough. This is truly a covenant. 
Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, I do establish. That means I immediately, I will establish this. Verse 11, he says, I establish. That's present. Verse 17, he says, I have established. Present, perfect. In other words, what he's saying is, I will do this immediately. I do it and I have done it. It is complete. God is the one who initiated this. He's the one who enacts it. He's the one who completes this covenant. And the sign is also stated repeatedly. Not just the covenant, but he says the sign is stated in verse 12. It is established in verse 13. It's guaranteed for the future in verses 14 to 15. And it says God will notice it in verse 16. So the repetition here throughout this text seems a lot, but it's important. Well, why this covenant? Why why did God do this? Well, simply for the blessings of man. For the blessings of man from the mercy of God. For the goodness of life from the goodness of God. For our enjoyment through God's grace, he gave us this covenant. Now, this was very important news for Noah, if you think about it, and his family. Um, There was no rain before the flood, remember. The earth was protected by what you'd call kind of a, a creation to say a water vapor canopy that made the entire planet uniform, almost like a kind of a semi-tropical climate. There wasn't a lot of change or upheaval. It was all the same. They hadn't known rain before. And that made the very kind of a just general kind of weather, very protective kind of environment environment where a lot of times the, the ultraviolet rays that we're inflicted with today were, were filtered out because they had a canopy over the top of them that God put there. So men, the Bible indicates, lived thousands of years old. Animals lived very old. Reptiles. All this stuff. The dinosaurs. But there was no rain. And if you think about that, boy, I mean, we whine and we complain. Oh, we're in a drought, we're in a drought. They didn't have any rain at all, and yet God provided the sustenance and the moisture that was needed through this canopy. Well, then at the flood, it rained for the first time. This was Noah's first experience with anything like this. The, 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 the clouds just broke open, and gallons and gallons and gallons of water came down upon them. And not just from the clouds, but from the earth as well. And all this stuff caused the earth to just explode with all this water. Gas and material went into the sky, broke up the canopy, and the water came down. And it it said that, that it deluged the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. But now, that's all over. Worldwide flood, everything's covered. And by the way, geologists, if they drop their bias of evolution, will concur on this fact. That's why you find certain fossils at certain places of the world that the animals didn't even exist there because of the worldwide flood that caused them to be moved there. But now the new world, the rain is... is, is going to be common. This is something that's going to be going on, and and he gives us the hydrological cycle. It's evaporated out of the ocean, goes into the clouds, carried across the land, and then it comes down in the form of rain. That's how it works. And it's absolutely essential for our life. Scientists say that 90 plus percent of us is water. That's amazing when you think of that as individuals. So water is something that's very important to us. And so this rain is going to fall from God as a blessing, and it's going to fall on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. It's going to make things grow. It's going to be necessary for life, providing beauty in the earth and food. Rain is going to be common. But Noah didn't know that yet. (laughs) Think about it. First time he saw rain, everything was killed, right? 
Him and his family were safe in the ark, but everything else was wiped out. That's his mentality when it comes to rain. So I'm sure they were not praying for another rainstorm. And so, you know, if you said to Noah, what do you think of rain? Uh, his heart would probably stop. Saw it once, didn't like it. <laughs> But here we see this, the testimony, his personal testimony about how he felt about rain is it was something that was, it was frightening. It was something that was paralyzing. Um, the first time it rained after the flood, he probably grabbed his family and headed back into the ark thinking, oh, here we go again. You know, maybe he didn't completely understand everything. Well, let's look at this text, and we're just going to start this today in the closing minutes we have together. We'll break it, it's broken into the three segments here. The covenant, the sign, and the summary. The covenant is in verses 8 to 9. And we'll just get through that and then we'll pick up the rest at the end here. Let's look at the covenant first of all. Um, this is God's first speech. It says, Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying... This is a message to all of humanity, as we said. The men represent... Uh, uh, the, the women who are their wives, they're all together here, they're a family, they're humanity, and God speaks directly to the whole family, the whole human race. And he says, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with, what, your descendants after you. And when he says behold, that, that's a, a word in Scripture that really calls for our undivided attention. It would be like today saying, hey, heads up. Right? I mean, come on, pay attention. That's, that's what God is saying. And uh, now you're out here, you're in this new world. I've told you what you are to do. Now I, you're supposed to reproduce, you're to enjoy creation, do all this stuff. But you know what? Now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish my covenant with you, he says, and with your descendants after you. This is very, very precise language because it's inspired Each phrase, if not each word, defines a specific feature of God's covenant. And I'm going to give you basically what what John MacArthur points out about this text of Scripture. He breaks it down into several phrases. And the first one is the covenant is unilateral. The covenant is unilateral. Notice what he says. Now behold, I myself. That means it's a covenant made by one. If you were to define a covenant, you would say, well, don't you have to have two people for a covenant? Yes. But this is a covenant that's made by one. The promise is singularly on the the person of God. He's doing it without any consideration of man or his will. He's doing it without any consultation. He didn't go to Noah and say, hey, what do you think about this? I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Nope. He's doing it without any negotiation. This is not what we would call a mutual agreement. And when you think of a covenant, usually you think of something not something that's unilateral, but something that's what? Bilateral. Because you think of a treaty, you think of some kind of agreement, mutual affirmation, mutual agreement. See, God is not saying here, please hear me, if you do this, then I'll do that. He's not saying that here. He's just telling Noah, this is what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter what you do. This is what I'm going to do. You just be sure to do what I told you to do in the first seven verses. Here's what I'm going to do, Noah. I'm going to establish my covenant. I myself. Verse 12. This is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you. Verse 17. This is a sign of the covenant which I have established. It's never we. Never. It's I. This is a promise that is completely unilateral, made by God, without any consultation from man. Secondly, it's unconditional. It's unconditional. It's not just unilateral, it's unconditional. He says, I myself do establish. It's not based on what you're going to do, Noah. I, I am establishing this. This word establish, it means to erect, to make firm, to, to stand solid. In other words, this is set in concrete. God is saying, I'm establishing this. It's it's irrelevant what you do, Noah. 
There are no conditions on the part of man to validate or to invalidate this covenant. Nothing man does can cause God to break this covenant, is his message. There's no conditions in man that make him deserve the covenant. There's no conditions in man that make him sustain the covenant. There's no conditions in man that can cause the termination of this covenant. It's a covenant that's unilateral. It's unconditional. I'm doing this. That's it, God says. It has nothing to do with you, what you do, what you don't do. It's, it's irrelevant. It's, it's, that's a pretty important point to make. And I only say that because it doesn't take very long in the cycle of society before we're right back to where we began before the flood. Right? I mean, that man's thoughts and actions were evil continually. Man is going to, to, to be fast as wicked as before the flood. He's going right back to the vomit. He didn't learn. But nonetheless, this is not a conditional covenant. It's irrelevant what man does, is what God is saying. And then we'll end here with the third one. The covenant is secure. The covenant is secure. Um, this covenant can be fully trusted. Because you notice, whose covenant is it? My covenant. God's covenant. That's what he says. He repeats it over in verses 9, 11, 15. Elsewhere, he says, between me and the earth, between me and all the flesh that is in the earth. It's completely secure because it is a covenant that's made by the eternal God who the scripture seems to indicate and tells us clearly he cannot change and he cannot lie. Covenant is the word. It's used, it's used here in all the verses, but verse 10 it's everywhere. I think the idea of a covenant, when we use the word covenant, is kind of unfamiliar today. I think the only thing that we would think of is the covenant of what? Marriage. Right? That's where we still kind of use that word. But even a lot of people are getting away from that. Well, I don't like that terminology. Right? And there's kind of a new thinking coming out on that. And I think if it wasn't for marriage, we wouldn't have any idea what a covenant is. You have to understand, back when God made this covenant, and back even throughout years of, of the world's existence, when you made a covenant, everything about your character, everything about you as a person, whether you're honesty or dishonest, whether, all that depended on whether you, what, kept the covenant. Remember when you used to make a, an agreement with a neighbor or something? Oh, I'll shake on it. You know, you just shake on it. You have to have contracts made up and, oh, sign here. And, oh, let's hire the lawyers. And, I mean, nowadays, you, you, a handshake means nothing. And so we have to stop and we have to realize that, well, this is what a covenant is. It's, it's, it's really God's character is on the line here. I mean, all of society is built around the idea that people keep their word, they keep their promise, they keep their covenant. And nowadays, when people walk down an aisle and you marry them and say, to death do us part, some people say, I, I don't want that in there. What do you mean you don't want it in there? Well, it just seems so final. It is. Hello, you're getting married. Wake up. You know, people don't realize that. They think, ah, we'll try it for a couple of years, see what happens, and then move on, you know. See, in ancient times, and, and even in Scripture, covenants were the foundation of society because people knew what a covenant is. When you made a covenant with somebody, you bound yourself to that promise. All of your character, all of your integrity, all of your reputation, your entire life was bound up in your loyalty to that agreement with that person. They were binding agreements between people and between cities and families, nations. There were business covenants. There were friendship covenants. There were marriage covenants. 
I mean, even their covenant between the king and his people would become a national constitution. And it spelled out the the duties of the ruler and the duties of the people. So people in the Old Testament, in Noah's time, throughout biblical times, really understood what a covenant was. It's a binding promise. And by the way, most covenants in Scripture were bilateral. And most covenants were conditional. Most covenants would have some kind of an out clause in case there was a violation. We don't see any out clause here. Why? Because God is making a unilateral, unconditional, secure covenant. This is really the best possible kind of covenant from the, bene- the, the mindset of a beneficiary, if you think about it. God made this covenant, and guess what? God kept his covenants. He keeps his promises. Great is thy faithfulness, right? That's why when you go through the Old Testament, constantly, one of the attributes of God is celebrated over and over and over is what? God is what? Faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant. And you can read that throughout throughout Scripture. So the Old Testament covenant from God was binding. It was, it was unilateral. It was unconditional. And it was secure. Next week, we'll get into the, the six covenants that existed in the Old Testament, in Scripture, I should say. And, and then we'll look at the other aspects of this covenant that, by the way, the rainbow is a sign of this covenant. And so I think as as Christians, we need to celebrate the rainbow. We don't need to be afraid. Well, what if people think I'm gay? If I have a rainbow on my shirt. I mean, it's ridiculous. We need to be a little more bold about what biblical truth says. Not for the purpose of offending anybody. That's not why we do this. But, but it's, it's really by standing up for what Scripture says. And, you know, trust me. Uh, will people be offended? Yes. You know, I remember when I prayed at a city council meeting and I said two sentences that got me in trouble in this entire prayer I said we need to pray for our nation because we live in a country where murder is no longer murder, speaking of the unborn. And I said, and marriage is no longer marriage. And the Supreme Court had just okayed homosexual marriage. And, you know, the train came off the rails at that point. I thought, what's the problem, right? (laughs) Innocent, stupid, naive, whatever. But you know what? I would say it again. And it's, it's sad that people react that way when they hear the truth of God. It's not my truth, it's God's truth. Don't have an issue with me, take it up with God. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of Scripture that we can stand boldly as believers and proclaim its goodness and its truth without apology. Lord, we don't have to be afraid of being canceled or being attacked as being hateful or a hater because we know that we we love people we love people who are caught up in the in the the unrighteous lifestyle of homosexuality they're not the enemy they're victims of the enemy would it be god that you could work in their heart that you could show them the error of their way that you would be gracious to them show them their need of a savior Lord, the sin of homosexuality is no worse than the sin of adultery. Father, we we need to realize that this is all sin in your eyes. And just because we're forgiven as believers, we don't have within ourselves the, the righteousness to stand up and look down at our spiritual noses at other people. Because we realize that we, we ourselves 
are sinners saved by your grace. There's probably not a person in this room that doesn't deal with some element of sin on a daily basis. And yet you say that our sins are forgiven. And we desire to live righteous lives for you, but we don't do it perfectly. We all fail in a myriad of ways probably every day. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And Lord, when we look at a rainbow, I pray that we would be reminded of your faithfulness, of your goodness, of this covenant that you made with Noah and all of us, really, all of the world. Never, ever again to cause this world to be destroyed by a worldwide flood. This world one day will be destroyed, but it won't be with water. It says it will be burnt up. And Father, we pray for those who may not know you. We pray for those who may not have come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray for those who may not have sought you out, Jesus, as the Savior to forgive their sin. We pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them a need in their own life for a Savior, for forgiveness from their sin. Lord, that you would cause their hearts to be filled with repentance and that they would be grievous over their sin before a holy God. And Lord, you would use that grief to draw them to the Savior and that grief would be turned into joy when they realized that Christ came, he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross, he died willingly for our sin and he paid completely for the sins of those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ. And on the third day, he rose victorious over sin and death. And Lord, we can have that victory in Christ if we just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, help us to be bold in our faith as we live in this dark and dying world. This world around us is filled with sin. It's filled with unrighteousness. I pray that we would stand out as beacons of light, of your light, that we would be able to point people to Christ, to God, as their creator. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together, and we'll close with one one last song.